1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Trickington and I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong to discuss her new book, Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, the Revolutionary Feminist Conference of 1949. Dr. Armstrong is a professor of women and gender studies at Smith College and has published extensively on transnational feminist movements, including a 2013 book, Gender and Neoliberalism, the All-Indian Democratic Women's Association and Globalization Politics. Lisa, thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: So Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, first of all, has a great title. Um, and second of all, it was just published on International Women's Day this March by the University of California Press. The book tells the story of the 1949 Asian Women's Conference, which was convened by the Women's International Democratic Federation. And for listeners not familiar with the WIDF, they were a massive international women's organization active from the end of World War II. But it's really only in the past 10 or 15 years that historians have begun to write seriously about their work. So this book, I think, makes an important contribution to understanding the WIDF's strategic framework and the intellectual scaffolding for it, which, as you write, was built largely by women from Asia and Africa. It's also quite a fun read and has a really fascinating cast of characters. Um, I wish we could talk about all of them today, but we probably won't have time. So I will ask you a bit about some of them, as well as about the theory behind the WIDF's political strategy. Um, But first, tell us a bit about your own background. How did you come to work on the WIDF and on this conference in particular?
0: It was a circuitous route. Um, So the book that you mentioned that I wrote about the All India Democratic Women's Association is a a left-wing communist allied women's movement in India. It is similarly large. It had, um, at at the time I was writing about it, over 25 million members. And it was also a movement that nobody knows about. Um, So I've I've realized that there's a theme in my work. It's I'm really interested in the mass movements of women that are hidden in front of our very eyes. Um, and, And by mass movements, when we say numbers like 25 million for the All India Democratic Women's Association... Or numbers like 80 million, which was the membership of WIDF by 1953. These are numbers that we simply don't have in other locations of the women's movement. So this has always been, it turns out, you know, one doesn't know one's fascinations until the books are done, um, was always been a fascination. So I was doing my work on the All India Democratic Women's Federation uh, Association they were a breakaway. There was um, the um, women's organization in India had two components, the National Federation of Indian Women and then AIWDA. And I became interested in their early history. So I started looking in the Teen Murthy archives in New Delhi, and I found this gorgeous oral history interview that had been transcribed with a very well-known um, Indian communist feminist. Her name, well, she was called Hadra begum And this interview mentioned WIDF conference held in Copenhagen in 1953, and it was such a fascinating story and the ways that, I mean, a massive, a whole plane load of women came from India to join this conference in 1953, and I thought, why have I never heard of this before? Um, And that was the beginning of something close to an obsession for me is figuring out what WIDF was, what it stood for, why it was paying so close attention to this very active, very revolutionary women's movement right at the cusp of independence in India. And what was the question I was asking is, what's the relationship between the two? What was the give and the take? Because I knew how militant and how um, creative and how thoughtful around organizing peasant women. So this is very rural, local organizing that was happening across India with this group. And what did it mean for them to be a transnational women's movement as well? What did that mean for peasant women who were organized within its ages and demanding rights against landlords, um, feudal agents, as well as nationalist bourgeoisie and large landowners? So that's how I started uh, with just a thousand, if not more, questions.
1: Well, as you say, writing about movements that nobody knows about comes with a lot of logistical and methodological challenges when it comes to sources. So I'd love to ask you about how you navigated that in this book. Um, As you write, the AWC is almost sorry, I've given it an um, acronym already, but the Asian Women's Conference is even more invisible in many ways than other WIDF conferences. How did you find out about it? And why do you think it has been so hard?
0: I mean, I've come to some some uh, answers, but I, I can't say that I have fully laid my own questions to rest. So... Um, I think the answer lies in its time. So, the Asians Women's Conference, um, for many, we don't think of 1949 as a revolutionary moment. We think of it as sort of the aftermath of World War II. And if we're located in the United States or in Europe or the UK, we think of it as kind of a regrouping period, a reconstruction period, um, and maybe a conservatizing period. So, in the case of the United States, it was a it was a, a sort of putting the lid back on um, the women's right to work or African Americans' right to have full citizenship. So it was really a suppression of rights period. And yet, when you when you turn your head, when you change your lens, this was an incredibly revolutionary period. So I think given. That complexity, 1949, in a way, if we were to ask about the year, what do we know about what was happening at that time? And I think that might be a piece of it. It was also the it was when the engines were fully picking up to speed on anti-communism. So I think there's no way to tell a story of the Women's International Democratic Federation because of the number of communist women's groups that were aligned with it. There's no way to tell it outside of that massive system of anti-communism that was gearing up precisely at this moment. Then the question came for me, why might its own progenitors, its own activists, its own organizations not be doing more to talk about it? Um, And so that's for me that probably the, still the live set of questions Um, as far as finding material about it. Um, The first place I went was um, to Amsterdam. So first I was in New Delhi. I was combing the sources. I started talking to to, um, elders in the movement, activists that I've known and some activists that I was put in touch with, and asking them, what was this movement? So I first went to people. Um, which even though it's a, you know, I'm talking about 1949, when, I, when my curios- curiosity first got piqued, there were still women alive who knew the movement, who had spent time in Berlin, who knew the people who were in Paris. Um, Gita Bandyopadhyay, who's one of the people in this book, still has friends who are active in left politics and still remember her fondly. So there was a way that I could tap into those human memories um, that was allowed me to think there's something here. So then I go to Amsterdam. I had the good fortune of running into Francesca de Hahn, who at that time was writing a book um, about three international women's movements at the time, and WIDF was one of them. And she had said, do you notice in the archives, here's how you can search for the archives. At, at this time, the archives are called Atria. Atria. And um, do you notice what's missing? And it became clear to me, with her sort of eye, um, that there's this whole period that's missing. So, um, about 1947 to roughly 1952, I would say 1951 maybe. Um, there's just a, a dearth of material. It's like a, it's like a hole. Um, and so again, that to my interest. So I was reading about the Asian Women's Conference. I was reading that it was going to happen. I looked at all of the careful, methodical um, outreach that Lusui in particular was doing in northern parts of Africa, but also in Western Africa and Eastern Africa. She was really going out and making sure that all of these nascent and sort of emerging anti-colonial movements were within the network, at least had a communication. And uh, I could see all the preparation in the materials that were in Amsterdam, and then the conference, theres it was just this intriguing silence, Um, and I couldn't find the reports, what happened, who was there, how many people went, um, what they decided, what they were discussing, and that became the... um, the quest. Um, I got really lucky. My own archives are quite strong in the WIDF holdings, so I went through all of them. Again, there was that gap, that time gap. Um, But this one person, um, Elizabeth Millard, or Betty Millard as she was known, um, in 2011 her records were given by her nephew to our archives. I heard about this. I didn't yet know that she was at this conference. I didn't yet know that, in fact, her journals would be such an incredible source for me. But I immediately started coming to the archives and saying, have you processed them yet? Have you processed them yet? And um, finally, a a really generous and lovely archivist who I've known for a long time let me access the records um, before they'd been processed. And I, I found all those journals and I... It is one of those moments where you realize something happened, people were there, and it matters even more than I had originally thought.
1: Wow, what a lucky find. Um, I'll also put in a plug for the Smith archives. They're absolutely beautiful and everyone there is so helpful. So if anyone's listening, go to Smith. Exactly. Um, Let me ask you a little bit about about the progenitors of this conference. What are the origins of the Asian Women's Conference? Who's organizing
0: it? What are the Mm -hmm. goals for it? So one thing that that I noticed very quickly is that even at the founding of the Women's International Democratic Federation, all of the women who were part of this conference were, were either they were there or women from their organizations were there. So as we know. Indonesia didn't have independence in 1945. India didn't have independence in 1945. Vietnam was still occupied by the French, right? So there's all of these locations that are able to send people to this founding conference in 1945. There are also a lot of people who were denied visas by their home governments. So it was often um, the early formation where students from these countries around the world who were in Europe. And they attended that opening conference. Some were able to fly in, others were not. And um, the first um, sort of rubric or the overarching commitment that the conference that the WIDF had was anti-fascism. It makes perfect sense. It's being founded in Paris. It's 1945. It's December. Um, And they said, we are an anti-fascist women's organization. But there were Um, People like Vivian uh, Mason, uh, Carter, uh, sorry, Vivian Carter Mason um, from the United States. There were people like Dong Tae Hao from Vietnam. Um, There were delegates from uh, Algeria. And they said, no, that's not enough. Anti-fascism is absolutely our goal as well, because World War II, as we know, involved parts of Southeast Asia as active battlefronts, as well as the whole coast of China, like areas we think of World War II as a battlefront in Europe. That's our myopia, right? And these activists came and they said, anti-fascism, absolutely. We too are against fascism. We have to have as an explicit uniting goal, anti-racism. And anti-colonialism, and that moment in my mind catapulted the Women's International Democratic Federation from a an organization primarily framed and focused and 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 peopled by Euro-Americans to a movement that actually had the the vision to take on the most revolutionary movements at this time,
1: and. As you write about in this book, this conference becomes a moment where that strategy is really Formed. Could you talk a little bit about this dual two part theory that comes out of the conference? You write about this differential revolutionary women's praxis that the conference develops.
0: What is that? And I think, um, yes. And one thing to say is that Asia is not a natural category. None of these continental categories are natural, Um, they are produced. And so part of what this conference was attempting to do was to produce a solidarity among a category called Asian women. So we tend to think that these are somehow obvious or geographically true. Um, they were producing a solidarity at this conference. So it meant women from Syria were included as Asian women, right? We have these, the namings of geographies, which I have colonial histories. They were producing an anti-colonial history. So we had women from uh, Israel, um, Syria, um, Uh, Lebanon, as well as the Philippines and India, and um, the Pakistani delegate was not able to go. But from from all of these reasons, from 14 different countries, from um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, from Kyrgyz and Turkestan. So so here's this production of unity, but the two-partness was, okay, we have a battle to win once we produce a solidarity among uh, Asian women, we are fighting for a just peace, what they call the just peace, which meant the overthrow of colonial occupation. But the two-partness was who's coming with us? We are building our unity. And it was not symbolic. It was in fact quite carefully thought out that women from anti-colonial movements in the continent of Africa were also invited to the conference. Um, So from Madagascar, from Ivory Coast, um, from Algeria, as I said, and these were women who were at this conference with their own anti-colonial movements. Many of them were founding and co-founders of the communist parties in their countries, as well as the women's movements that they were um, part of and, and leading. So the other side of it is, what about the colonizers, right? This is a transnational movement. This is a global movement. Um, what is the role for, col- for women from colonizing countries? And I think this is where the brilliance of calling it an Asian women's conference, again, not descriptive, in fact, an invocation of solidarity that had to be made. Um, it, European and American women were invited to the conference because they were saying, you have a role, too. You're from a location of power. What can your role be, given that we are fighting occupation? So that two-partness really was um, a question of strategy and tactics. The solidarity, the, the love in the conference was very real. Um, you can see in the photographs, The like there's one point in the conference that Houthi Minh runs from the audience to hug um, Jeanette Vermeersh, who was a member of parliament, a communist member of parliament in France at the time, to say, you know, your solidarity, we are fighting on the front lines. You have a front lines too. It's one that may look peaceful. It is a battlefront. And so um, within months of the conference ending, Jeanette Vermeer took quite literally this two-part strategy, gets on the floor of um, the French um, parliament and denounces the occupation of Vietnam. And and scorches the idea that this is a just or civilizing mission. She said, that is an unjust war. The Vietnamese people and Vietnamese women are fighting a just war. So that moment, um, that demand, that, that sort of recognition that there's a role for women to play, no matter where they are, that this is, and it's a dangerous role. It was dangerous for Jeanette Vermeersch. The possibility of being jailed or being um, outcast um, was very real. And in fact, right after that speech, uh, within months, WIDF was thrown out of France and had to move to Berlin.
1: Well, let's dig a little bit more into some of these women who are coming from both sides. Um, of that divide. I really love your second chapter where you sort of trace how they actually got to the conference, just logistically, you know, some are on trains, some are walking, some are flying. Um, And it really just brings them to life in an interesting way, I think. So I'd love to just talk about three of them. The first is um, Lila Seripno. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's an Indonesian woman who's living in the N- Netherlands, and she gets there on the Vladivostok Express from Moscow from attending another WIDF executive committee meeting. How did someone like that first become involved
0: in the WIDF? Yeah, and this is this was the fun part of the research. This was like that early part where I was able to talk to people in India, to activists in India, to find out, the importance of WIDF in India. In this case, there are a whole number of public historians um, who were instrumental to figuring out the stories of people like Laila Saripno in particular. So she was part of this revolutionary group of Indonesian students. She herself was not at school. Her brother was in a university studying for his, um, I think his MA degree. And he and They were part of this larger group of activists who were all Indonesian, who were incredibly um, brave, courageous. Her house um, was very close to the German secret services, it was also the location of the printing press for their underground materials. Um, And in the attic, she would churn out the literature of a variety of anti-fascist revolutionary newspapers. Um, She was also part of cells that were um Stealing the arms from german uh, German warehouses of of armory and then using them to blow up um, fascist outposts to kill um, using the guns on their own uh, officers so she was in a um, in a group of people that were taking a lot of risks. Something that has come out because of the work of these public historians is how Important it was to her to see the differences of revolutionary activity in Indonesia and what she saw when she came to the Netherlands. And that moment when she recognized that that the opposition to the occupation of Indonesia was extant in the Netherlands as well. And that Dutch communists was the location where she saw the greatest, um, most entrenched resistance. So she joined... um, uh, the Communist Party of, of Indonesia, but their linkages, and this is that story of colonialism, again, which I hope gets told more and more. It's true for Britain. It's true for France. It's true for um, the Netherlands. These were relationships between the Communist parties in the colonized locations and the colonizing locations. So she joined, she was very, very close um, with Ria Averink, who was um Uh, a well-known activist who had spent much of World War II in a concentration camp for her political activities. And the two of them, as well as one other person from the Netherlands, ended up going to the meeting in Moscow, which was sort of a little bit of a planning meeting. It was something they were trying to... What's so interesting to me is that they were working very carefully on starting newspapers around the world from different locations and trying to strategize what that would be. Um, But... Yeah, she is. Um, Laila Suripno has a really complicated life, um, never goes back to Indonesia, in part because of the murder of her husband, um, who's known as Suripno, um, uh, by the Hatta government. He was one of the revolutionaries that was assassinated after. A um, an uprising um, during when the Hatta government, a little complicated, was fighting with the Indonesians and briefly had a peace with the left um, uh, nationalist movements in Indonesia, but he was shot in the head, Um, and after that she ended up dying in the Netherlands and and maintained her like maintained her activist standing, um, was very active in left politics in the Netherlands um, there.
1: And how about Betty Miller, who you talked about earlier? Um, her journal provides so many interesting details, I'm sure, about this journey. What was it like for her? How did she end up on this train? Well, um, she was one. Yeah. She
0: and Gita Bandiopatai, who became very close friends, um, the two of them were in Paris at this time. And Betty did work. She was an American communist. Um, she was from an elite background, um, and she had been sent by the um, CPUSA uh, Uh, to, to, um, do outreach work, um, uh, working on translations, writing for the information bulletin. So she was that person, the communications person. And she learned French was okay. Um, I think it got a lot better. And then Gita Bandiopadai was also at the central offices in Paris. Um, and I think the journey for the, and the role that, um, Betty Millard was playing at this time was, a was an important one, Um, and that's precisely because of the role of the United States coming out of World War II. So having to see the debates around American imperialism that probably Betty Millard would not have heard in in quite this clarity as she was hearing both in Europe and when she was traveling um, to this conference, the Asian Women's Conference. And there's a lot of mention in her journals of by different people asking her how it felt to carry the weight of American imperialism while knowing she was an American communist against American imperialism, the, the anger, the hurt, the rage, um, there's a way that she had to receive that every single day. Um, And the train ride that was about um, 10 days from, from Moscow to Beijing That's what they did. They had time to talk with each other, right? They're in the train together day and night. They're in compartments with four people. They're moving between compartments and they're teaching each other about their lives. So it was a very intimate, what I learned from her journals and what she, I read now um, three uh, journals of the trip Hers were by far the most detailed and intimate regarding the conversations. Eslanda Robeson is the other person. Hers also have lovely details about the content of conversations. Betty tends to get into the the more um, tricky aspects, the more fractious elements, and and is constantly commenting on how things are done, why they're done that way, who she likes, why she likes them. Um, So that element was fabulous to untangle but she put it all in code so there was a lot of initials for names so I just spent I spent months figuring out who was who and who just and then I was able later to find those two other journal entries so I could triangulate um who she might be talking about
1: wow what a great source um How about the women who did not take the train? Um, Someone like Ho Thi Minh from North Vietnam. Who is she and how did she end up getting to Beijing?
0: So I I absolutely, I mean, I love all of these women at this point. I won't pretend to be completely objective. Hothi Minh was a particularly interesting um, person for me to to figure out more about. So she's coming from an area of Vietnam that's liberated. So she's from an autonomous zone of Vietnam in the Northern part of Vietnam. This is during French occupation, right? These are, again, these are such consciously erased, even in France, even in French literature, right? That, um, and scholarship. This is, This is erased. Um, They had demanded independence, claimed independence after the end, uh, when the Japanese um, left Vietnam. And they said, okay, we're done. Enough occupation, right? Anti-fascism. And... the French very quickly regrouped and and reasserted control and took over the southern half of Vietnam. They were able to hold. So Ho Chi Minh is coming from an area that has different judicial systems, has done land reform, has started schools for women, has demanded universal rights to health care and literacy. All of these basic demands of socialism have already begun to happen where she's coming from. But the borders between Vietnam and uh, China were heavily policed. So there's She's a well-respected activist. Again, many of these people remained in left politics for their lives. Um, and she's known as this incredible organizer and someone you go to for advice. She's still quite young at this point, but that reputation stayed with her. So she tries three different times to get to Beijing. So she's going six months early. She was part of this 10-member de- delegate delegation of people organizing the conference. So she's supposed to get there six months in advance. It's a huge undertaking. Even though there's only 199 delegates, it's hundreds of thousands of women who are participating in the preparations um, so that they can figure out what will they talk about, how will they talk about it, what matters. Um, so everyone's doing this outreach across their countries. And Hoti Min is getting ready to join this delegation. She goes up to the border, she walks up to the border from the autonomous region, and she's turned back by French authorities, the French troops. They might have been Vietnamese, but, but they were the French troops. She tries again from a different location on the border and is again turned back. Finally, out of frustration, she takes um, a ship from Hanoi to France. From France, gets another boat and takes a ship to Beijing. She gets to the conference about a week before it begins. And she's able to attend the conference, but she is not able to help with the preparations. She spent that entire six months just trying to get there. So there was supposed to be four other women from North Vietnam who were coming. And they they prepared extensively. So, you know, as, as I've already said, they're under full occupation. They're fighting every day just to retain control over this autonomous zone. They're doing incredible Work among the, the um, rural people in North Vietnam. And they take the time off. I always have to remember that, that they're in the middle of, a, they're, they're making a choice that this conference is so important, they're going to leave the life or death situation of their fight on the ground in Vietnam. So they tried to come uh, and they were able to get through the border and they walked up the predominantly walking up the coast of China which if you look at a map is not a short journey um, it was also at a period when American warships were uh, warplanes were bombing strafing the area so it was incredibly dangerous and they missed the conference by a week so um, these are just two stories there were other people who were walking from Myanmar what then was called Burma um, and she w- one was able to come the other one was turned back. Um, and then another person was able to come from Malaya, which is now Malaysia and Singapore. So there were people who were having to walk. And these, this is not, these are not short distances and they are incredibly dangerous terrain. All of these were in the middle of what were called at the time civil wars. They were wars of occupation. They were colonial wars, but weaponizing uh, uh, fissures within these countries.
1: Well, all of those are just incredible stories of the commitment to this conference that these women had. Um, Once they get there, how do they find common ground? And without asking too leading of a question, I thought it was really interesting to hear how you talk about the language of revolutionary motherhood as something that crosses geographies and class. Could you talk a little bit more about how the WIDF is building sort of a solidarity amongst all of these women from such vastly different Mm -hmm. backgrounds? Yeah,
0: yeah, and this is where the having access, so finally finding the proceedings of the conference, which I found um, in the middle of winter. Um, I just tripped over this collection of materials in Hidinga, single uh, Sweden, in uh, um, for the Left Federation of Sweden, which was the allied organization, and having that detailed every single day, it was typed into uh, with, with the full script um, and sent probably, I think, to Andrea Andrine who was not at the conference, was an important member of um, WIDF at the time. And um, having that detail was really helpful. So the idea of revolutionary motherhood was... It was as much an aspiration as a possibility. So as I dug into the lives of women who were part of revolutionary anti-colonial movements from uh, Malaysia, from Myanmar, from um, Singapore, from uh, Vietnam, what I saw again and again is, of course, they were not able To take care of children. It wasn't that motherhood was some kind of biological destiny. In fact, it was precisely what was not possible. These were guerrilla warriors for the most part. They spent time in the least habitable habitable terrains of their countries because of the dangers of being in, you know, a proper house or, you know, with their families. So their children were taken care of by their mothers often. So this idea of revolutionary motherhood was was a possibility, was a hope, it was a dream, um, rather than simply um, something that they were being forced to take on. And I think in the other instances is that revolutionary motherhood imagined the possibility of being a mother without it being a detriment. So within revolutionary motherhood, it meant that we have the capacity as women to imagine a full life if we have children so rather than motherhood being a singular role identity location of labor revolutionary motherhood imagined that motherhood itself would be transformed as something that that promoted and allowed for full citizenship rather than hampered and denied full citizenship
1: While we're on the topic of definitions, um, I also really liked the way that you explained the WIDF's definition of peace. Could you talk a bit about how peace was understood by the delegates to this Mm -hmm. conference?
0: So this is where Eslanda Robeson's accounts were really useful, because she, she, as a journalist, and she was reporting on the conference as a journalist, one who was deeply within progressive movements and particularly anti-racist and fighting Jim Crow in the United States. But she picked up on this. In fact, the title comes from her she loved the slogan of the conference, bury the corpse of colon- colonialism. Um, and so that was something that I saw again and again in her notes at the conference. So she's working on this notion of peace, and she writes a lot about it in her journalistic reports after the conference. And she says, what I learned from this conference is that, that, that peace is not passive. Peace, A just peace, a one peace, a universal peace is one that's actively fought for and developed. And peace here is, is functioning as a way to talk about the absence of war, but absence of war is not enough. So peace in the language of left-wing activists was denoted a peace at the level of daily life, of social fabric, of relations between people. And that in an in a analysis of capitalism, War, aggression, acquisition, exploitation, these are forms of violence endemic to capitalism. So peace, rather than just the absence of war, was the active production of justice and freedom and emancipation. So it was a term that circulated a lot in ways that it had all of this, like an iceberg. It had all of this underneath it. I think it could be heard simply as peace. Uh, um, but they made sure in their work that, that it was never articulated simply as the moment the guns are put away. It's that development of a fabric of society where everyone's aspirations can be fulfilled.
1: And as you say in some of your other writings, it could be achieved at the barrel of the gun, <laughs>
0: yes. um, if necessary. In fact, at this moment in history, um, there was no other way to achieve it. Um, and I think that's what is so so complicated about it because it was not the absence of um military engagement um precisely because of the i mean all of those armaments that were in the theater of war against the japanese in um, southeast asia south asia and east asia were turned against they stayed in the region they were they um these uh, colonial powers including the united states Met with each other and figured out. Now, where would you like my warships? I can give you this ammunition. I've got this over here. So, these um, re-instantiation of, of colonial occupation was happening with incredible military might behind it. Um, it. In part, precisely because of the end of the World War II, rather than so. So, so what Euro America was calling peace was in fact the, the onslaught. Um, or the renewed onslaught in these locations.
1: And as a lot of the characters in your book show, women are very much part of this often militarized anti-colonial mobilization. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it affected women's participation
0: in politics as well? Yeah, I think, I, I, so this is the period I've looked at, but. My sense is this is a period where women were gaining some of the, the highest positions within their organization. So I've already mentioned that some of these communist parties were co-founded and founded by women. Um, this is also true in terms of the leadership positions they were taking within their communist parties um, and left parties. Um, it's, it's depending on the country. It was how it was formed. And... Um, They were in decision-making bodies. They were right in the thick of the fight. Um, I think one of the places where you can see this materially is in how they were conceptualizing women's emancipation and what it meant to live without violence. So if you look at the autonomous zones of Vietnam again, you'll see that there were women's courts around um, spousal violence, um, that they were taking on questions of um, interpersonal violence within their own, you know, these production of new social arrangements in the autonomous zones. So I think that's a place where you can see how, I mean, it's, they had the support of comrades, right? So it wouldn't have been possible without building that consensus, but you can see the types of leadership they were taking in the innovations around these questions of violence and making sure that colonial occupation as they did in WIDF in Paris in 1945, that anti-fascism, we need to be as specific as possible. And similarly, in anti-colonial movements, we need to be as specific. If we cannot accept colonial violence, we cannot accept domestic violence. So I think it's a place where you you can see the importance and the strength of voice and commitment of a lot of the leaders who actually ended up coming to the Asian Women's Conference, but also represented many, many people who were at, were in their struggles at home.
1: So returning to this conference, how did it affect the lives of the delegates once they left? What happened to some of them when they returned home afterwards?
0: All of them went home and spread the word. That's what they did. Um, I think uh, in the case of places like places that were actively fighting, whether it was the Philippines or or, um, Indonesia or Malaya or Burma or Vietnam, um, what they came back with was hope. Um, they came back with a knowledge that they weren't alone. They weren't alone in the region, that they built this solidarity, and they weren't alone even from the location of their oppressors. Um, And and so coming back for those women, part of these active anti-colonial struggles, there was some outreach work done. Absolutely. I think what they did immediately is say, what does this look like in practice? How do we put this into play in our struggles? And then I think for the case of in, like these emerging anti colonial movements, so if you look in Algeria, for example, Bea, Bea al came back and covered the country. She just went from, 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 township to township, these small rural localities, and gave speeches. Um, she also wrote articles, but because of literacy, I mean, colonialism did not promote or encourage literacy among the the many people of the rural areas and the cities, the working people of the cities. So a lot of this was speeches. And um, she spoke for over two months after returning and had a pivotal effect on the um, particularly workers' struggles. So there was a dock workers' struggle in Oran. And one of the things, the reason this is so important is that Algeria was supplying troops for the occupation of Vietnam. So none of this passed their attention, right? This was exactly the people they were organizing among where their sons were being sent to Vietnam to suppress a rebellion. So there was this incredible... Um, this is in 1950 in Oran, which was a very revolutionary part of Algeria and still is, Um, there was a dock workers strike where they were refusing to load um, armaments onto ships for the French that were headed to Vietnam. And they were part of this ongoing struggle to not um, allow young men to be recruited. Um, At this time, the French were recruiting young men by weighing them. And you were paid. Your family was paid more if you weighed more. Um, so all of this is happening, and the women. So this struggle is happening in the dock worker strike. The workers are mainly men. After Baya Alushiche comes through this region, they they join the struggles, and they completely overturn the police firings and the um, uh, arrest of these workers, and they and they win the struggle. So it's a. It's a, in the lore of the of the period of the time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Baya's work um, and she generally talked to segre- gender segregated audiences. Her work and she always talked first to the women of the localities that she went to, and then the men would say, "Can you please talk to us too?" Like that's not fair. We want to hear what you said, um, but that she was organizing women in these rural localities had everything to do with the militants, the commitment in the regions to, to anti-colonial struggles.
1: And what about the legacy of the conference on the WIDF? Yes. Um, how does it affect the WIDF strategy going That's forward? That's
0: such a complicated, that was one of my, as we've talked about already, one of my conundrums. So you would think, given that this conference was so hidden, um, that it would have no effect if they hid it because they, they they were embarrassed or they were not happy with the findings of the conference. So what I discovered is that is exactly the opposite of the truth, that in fact it had deep resonance for WIDF going forward. And if we look at the rise, so here we are in 1949, the world doesn't yet know that this is the anti-colonial decades, right? Night, the late 1940s, into the 50s, right through the 60s. And um and yet it and yet that's what it was. That's what happened. Um and so Widif was right there. And they had this lovely strategy, which I've watched again and again. And it's not my period, and thank goodness there are scholars who are working on this. Finally, these stories are being told. Um, including you, uh, and which, which is fabulous, um, is this, uh, it's a supportive role. So WIDF didn't say you have to join WIDF to gain our support. They said if you want to hold the Asian Women's Conference as it was held in Accra, Ghana in 1957, I think it was, or 1958, they said we'll give all the support in the world. We'll give financial support, we'll give you know, material support, we'll connections, you know, we'll have some delegates attend, but that's not our conference, right? We're not organizing that conference. And that kind of um, care and attention to the autonomy of movements and the demands of movements, I think that's one of the outflows, that the Asian Women's Conference didn't take directives from anyone, which is exactly against the anti-communist propaganda that we're told, right? We're told that somehow these are dupes, these are puppets, that these women didn't know what they were getting into. And yet the organization was structured very differently. They were saying, this is your struggle. What are the steps you need to take? How can we be of help? And I think that was I don't know what I was expecting to find, but what I saw out of, out of the preparations for this conference in Asia, even their response to the critiques in 1945 was a willingness to listen and to say, no, we'll adjust. We'll shape the way we're doing our work so we can hear where we're not being helpful or we're not listening carefully enough.
1: Well, my final question is about sort of how this resonates today, because I think it's a really interesting moment to be reading about the development of an analysis like this. And I'm wondering if you see this type of analysis echoing in any contemporary progressive movements? And if not, who should be reading this book? What do you hope the audience is?
0: This isn't exactly contemporary today. I think there are instances that there's an idea that's current today, which is listen to the women who are facing a particular oppression. After the U.S. started bombing Afghanistan in 2001, there was that moment in the United States when the women's movement said, first of all, we have to oppose the framing of the occupation of Afghanistan and the bombing of Afghanistan as a women's issue because Laura Bush is sitting on a chintz sofa telling us that this is for the benefit of Afghan women, right? and Immediately, uh, some parts of the women 's movement went along with that logic. I'm not presuming that this is some unitary formation, but there was a, a strained and I think it is a legacy of this two part strategy that said, who do we how do we figure out what's happening to women within Afghanistan? What is it that would be the most effective refusal of um carpet bombing of an entire country. There is no logic to imagining that this is in favor of women's rights. That just, it defies our knowledge of the devastation that bombing, carpet bombing creates. So I think that's an example from, you know, that post 9-11, that 2001 fog of war period, where you could hear the logic of this, that, that rather than an imperial feminism deciding we know what's best for somebody else, we have to listen and figure, it like, listen and listen very hard. And then given that we are in, not in that location, what would an effective solidarity strategy be? So that would be a slightly, you know, it's now 20 years on. Um, I don't think it's completely disappeared. Um, just like this is a small example. It's almost like um, it's less strategic and it's more just an ethos, we should say. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope a lot of people will read this because I think it is a really hopeful text in terms of thinking about what it's like to look at seemingly insurmountable odds and come to it with a lot of hope and a lot of joy. So um, I would love to hear what you're working on after this. What's,
0: what's next for you? Well, I'm, I have several projects. This is always the question that I have, um, I have a hard time boiling it into one answer. There's one area of research, well, Okay. So the one that I'm most quickly getting to is coming back to the All India Democratic Women's Association. And one of the questions I'm asking is about repair. Um, I think it's come out of this project as well. How do activists stay on the front lines that are incredibly dangerous and put their own lives at risk, their own families' lives at risk? Um, Where how does a movement allow for the continuance, the longevity of a movement and still allow for the, maybe the withdrawal of particular activists to repair themselves. And um, I've been, maybe this comes back to your, your point about joy. I've been watching for a long time, the role of humor in activism. So this is about that. It is about where do unusual solidarities lie? And how is humor actually a part, a necessary part of some of the most dangerous and meaningful and courageous uh, feminist activism happening today?
1: Well, I look forward to reading whatever comes out of that. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure to hear more about your book.
0: It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.
1: I'm Rebecca Trickington, and you've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've discussed Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, the Revolutionary Feminist Conference of 1949, by Elizabeth Armstrong, a 2023 release from the University of California Press.